Uh, today is a very special day. Uh, today, on December 22nd, my parents, sitting in the back row way back there, have been married 64 years. Yay! Happy anniversary! The joke I usually tell on Dad's anniversary is when you ask Dad, uh, Glenn, how long have you been married? His answer is the same, all my life. All my life. Last week, uh, Amy brought home a Christmas album from my parents' house, and we sat down and looked through Christmas pictures. My mom's kept an album of, of every year at Christmas since I was a little baby. And so, you know, there's a couple of pages devoted to each year. And one of the things that was painfully obvious is that I was a very spoiled, I guess, ungrateful child, because you could see on my face whether or not I liked my Christmas that year in all the pictures. You know, when there was a a bicycle or a skateboard under the Christmas tree. I mean, my grin was enormous, but when I was opening a sweater or some underwear, you could just see me pouting in all the pictures. Uh, one of the uh, disappointing Christmases actually began about a month earlier. I was four years old, um, and I went out with some buddies in the neighborhood to the field that was kind of behind the neighborhood, and we were playing army. And in the course of playing army, we lit a fire for our base camp, and the fire got out, and it set the field on fire. And so my father and a bunch of men from the neighborhood, they ran back there with rakes and shovels, and they spent like two or three hours trying to put out this fire. And when Dad came back, he was covered in just black soot. He was sweaty. He was tired. He was breathing heavily. He grabbed me by the shoulder. You know how you grab a little kid by the arm? And, and, and he marched me out to the shed. We had one of those little... Uh, one of those little aluminum sear sheds that you put together yourself. It comes, you know, in pieces, and you've got like 10,000 little nuts and screws. Well, he, he grabbed me by the arm, and, and, you, and you know, your, your feet are barely touching the ground. He marches me out to that shed, and I know he wanted the door opening to be much more dramatic than it was, because if you've ever tried to open a door on one of those aluminum sheds, I know he wanted to slam those doors open, but instead it was like, kakum, 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 kakum. You know, he finally gets it open, and there was a mini bike a Honda 50. He said, look, that was going to be your Christmas present, young man, but no longer. And then he, I'm taking it back tomorrow, he says. Oh man, I pouted that Christmas, I'm telling you. Two months later for my birthday, I got the mini bike and mom and dad fighted for another six, fought for another six months because I was only four, and mom said, he's too little for a minibike, and look at it, it's a two-speed motorcycle, and my child is only four, and, and dad said, well, look at him, Peggy, he's big, he's big for his age, he can handle it, and so I got on there and put on my little helmet, gave it a full throttle, and drove straight into that sear shed, bam, and <laughs> fell off. Everybody knows this is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. The song says so. That's what they say anyway. But I am certain that there are folks here today that it's not the most wonderful time of the year. Christmas might be a disappointment to you. It might be a, an annual reminder that your family is broken in some way or that it's dysfunctional. It might be an annual reminder that, that dad's an alcoholic or, or that... Grandma's no longer with your family. For some in our church, it'll be the first Christmas without a husband or without a wife or without a parent. It might be an annual smack in the face declaring things just didn't turn out the way you thought they would. So even though some say it's the most wonderful time of the year, 
Many are let down after the holiday escape, two, three days, maybe at the most, when people travel to see us or we travel to see others, and our life is kind of up for a short time, but then it's back down to where it was before. I think sometimes we can't appreciate the goodness of God unless we view it against the backdrop of our disappointment. Sometimes I think it it takes difficulty to help us really see the goodness of a loving Heavenly Father. The coming of Jesus Christ at Christmas was the greatest news the world had ever heard. And yet, as I said earlier, we've read it a hundred times. We've heard it a hundred times. Our minds are tempted to, to wander and drift away from the very important truths of Christmas. And so that's why, even though someone like me in this particular situation always wants to find something new to say about Christmas, it's good to be reminded of the old because we can forget. We can become distracted. I know many of you have travel plans. I know many of you are going to go home and bake this afternoon and make cookies and candies, and you're going to do special things around this time of the year. I'm glad that we're here today. I'm glad we're going to read something that is familiar to us because it's the greatest news the world has ever heard. Uh, Look with me at uh, Luke chapter 2, famous passage, made most famous, I suppose, by Linus on Charlie Brown's Christmas uh, Carol. Verse 8, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. For today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Today I want to focus on one verse, one verse that zeroes in on the heart of Christmas, one verse that demonstrates Christmas in a verse. It's the last verse I just read, Luke 2 and verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. In that one simple verse that you probably memorized as a child for a school play or some sort of contest at Sunday school, in that one simple verse, so much is communicated. It reveals to us the important truths surrounding Jesus at Christmas, why he came in the first place. So let me just highlight a few of these things from that one verse. The first thing that I see when I read it is that his birth was God's plan all along. The birth of Jesus Christ was God's plan all along. Again, look at verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. Notice the phrase, the town of David. Now, the town of David is not Jerusalem. David, the mighty warrior king, made Jerusalem the capital of Israel, but it's Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about seven miles south of Jerusalem, not very far at all. And get there on horseback. Goodness, you could even walk it back in those days. In those days, it was a tiny, tiny little village, a sleepy little town. Nobody traveled to Bethlehem. Today, it's much, much different. It's a bustling community.
Christ. In fact, in the middle of town, there's a church. It's called the Church of the Holy Nativity, and it is believed to have been built on the actual birthplace of Jesus Christ 1,700 years ago. It was then added onto, it was then remodeled, it was then taken to a whole new level. But in Christ's day, Bethlehem was a tiny, tiny little village. You wouldn't have gone there to see much. In fact, if you traveled to Bethlehem, you would have seen just a few houses dotting the the landscape. Interestingly enough, in 1865, a, a minister from Massachusetts, Boston actually, traveled to the Holy Land and he visited Bethlehem. And while he was there, he wrote a poem. He brought that poem home with him and gave it to the choir director in his church. And the choir director put it to music and we still sing the hymn today. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. He wrote it that way because 160 years ago, that's the kind of town it was. Much, much different than today. Today, the city of Bethlehem is under Palestinian control. And tourism is its greatest asset, as long as there's not a war going on or some kind of conflict. But back in those days, it was a tiny little town. The reason it's called the town of David is because David grew up there along with seven brothers and his father, Jesse. In fact, David tended sheep in the same fields outside of Bethlehem where the angel announced to the shepherds, Christ is born. We just read it a moment ago. That's why it's called the town of David. Now, there's one important fact that you need to know. 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, the Lord revealed the birthplace of Messiah, and it would be Bethlehem. The actual verse comes from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, and it was in those days, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Notice the phrase, though you are small. Back in those days, it was small, insignificant. And yet, God chose to 700 years prior, seven centuries before the fact, spell it out. When Jesus was born, Bethlehem was way off the beaten track. It wasn't the big bustling city of Jerusalem, and yet it was the birthplace of the Christ. Now, interestingly enough, that means that the birthplace of Messiah was no secret. For 700 years at least, every Jew familiar with the Old Testament covenant knew where Messiah would be born. In fact, remember when the Magi, they saw the star, they lived in the east, they saw the star, they traveled to it, they went to the palace, they knocked on the door, they said, King Herod, tell us where the Messiah is, tell us where the king of the Jews is, because we've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. So Herod pulls together his theology council, and he says, where is Messiah to be born? And they answered the question by quoting Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. You can read it for yourself in Matthew chapter 2. They said, in Bethlehem. Now, what's interesting to me about this is even though every Jew alive in the day knew where Messiah would be born, and even though Herod and his theology council knew that it was happening or supposed that it was happening based upon the testimony of the wise men, not one of them would be bothered with traveling a measly six or seven miles to see it for themselves. Not one of them would make that simple little journey to investigate for himself. They were totally indifferent to the birth 
of Messiah. They missed the most important event in the world because they just couldn't be bothered. Now, I want you to understand that Christ being born in Bethlehem was not God's knee-jerk reaction to the depravity of man. That wasn't God's great idea for that year. It wasn't like he looked down and evil was so prevalent, I've got to do something, here's an idea, I'll become one of them to save them from their, soul, their sins. It was his plan all along. The prophecy in the Old Testament, not just Micah's, but dozens more, reveal that it had been God's plan all along. His birth was God's plan. The second thing that, that is obvious to me it comes from the very first word we read in verse 11. Today, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord. Look at that one word, today. That tells me that his birth was as real as it gets. That tells me that it's happening. It's going on now. Today, it's real. You're not dreaming. Today, a Savior has been born. One word speaks to the fact that what happened in Bethlehem was nothing less than the birth of the Son of God. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase, you know, where were you when, you know, such and such happened? Or, well, everybody remembers where they were when they heard the news. Uh, every generation, I think, has one of those where were you when questions. My, my grandfather, for instance, his generation, uh, they all asked, where were you when you got the news that Pearl Harbor had been attacked by the Japanese? Off into a million pieces. We could actually see it coming up living in Florida. We could actually see the liftoff and we could see the explosion. And then, of course, most of us will never forget where we were on a Tuesday morning, September 11, 2001, when terrorists flew, building, uh, flew airplanes into buildings. Now, notice, while his birth was as real as it gets, there are no miracles associated with it. That's what leads me to say it was as real as it gets. We often associate the virgin birth with the birth of Christ, but it's important to point out that miracle happened nine months prior when Mary became pregnant without help from a man. There are no miracles associated with Christ's birth. That was an enormous miracle, a virgin birth. Again, seven, eight hundred years prior, the prophet Isaiah said it would be so but it would never, ever happen again. But following that miraculous conception, Mary's pregnancy went on just like anyone else's pregnancy would gone in a very normal way. It was kind of like a normal pregnancy. It was, it was painful. It was difficult. It was probably frustrating on some level. It was probably anxiety-filled, as many of you have felt and experienced, and it was messy. And yet... A normal birth in a very abnormal situation. 
We've, uh, we've all read stories or heard about people who give birth in, in strange circumstances or strange situations. Uh, a mother who gives birth in a shopping center. Um, maybe she's alone at home and gives birth. Uh, I've heard of m- mothers giving birth in taxi cabs uh, on sidewalk, city sidewalk streets, I've read. Uh, these are normal births, but in abnormal situations. And I think the birth of Jesus falls into that category. It was as real as it gets. It reminds me that God's plan all along was to become one of us, revealing that he has a plan for us. But, but, but this here is as real as it gets. And, and I find it very interesting that there are no miracles associated with the birth of Jesus, right down to the fact that there wasn't even a comfortable place for them to stay for her to give birth. Interesting. Then the, the third thing I, I got to point out comes from the last part of the verse. His birth, number three, was the solution to our problem. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, or the Christ. That's what Christ means, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Lord. Here's the big statement of the verse. Savior, Messiah, Lord. In fact, interestingly enough, when Luke actually wrote this account, he didn't use any articles. The original Greek text reads, Savior, Christ, Lord, or Savior, Messiah, Lord. There are no articles because the emphasis is on who Jesus was. Those are three big words, you realize. And maybe we ought visit them more often than we do. Savior means, of course, one who would deliver his people. It comes from an Old Testament name, Joshua or Yeshua. It means one who delivers his people. That's what a Savior meant. Messiah was the anointed one, the one set apart, the one chosen by God. And Lord is another name for God. It's a synonym for deity. Okay? Look, examine them one at a time. First of all, the word Savior. Savior. Okay? This is man's greatest need, church. You've heard me say on many occasions, God didn't send us a leader. He didn't send us a king. He didn't send us a a, a preacher. He He didn't give us another chance. He didn't give us a new opportunity Because none of those would have solved our greatest problem, which is our sin. He sent us a Savior to do for us what we could never have accomplished on our own. When the angel announced the birth of Jesus to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, he said, you're to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The little baby born in the manger was a savior, first and foremost. And then he says, Messiah. Messiah was that that long-awaited, promised one of Israel. And if you grew up in Israel, you were familiar with the idea of Messiah. It was steeped in their religious prophetic writings of the Old Testament. The coming Messiah one day was going to ransom Israel, was going to deliver Israel. From the moment that sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3... God knew that he would become one of us. He would become like us. He would be the solution to our problem. Again, Israel had heard about the coming of Messiah for centuries. But sadly, they were looking in the wrong place for the wrong kind of a Messiah. They assumed that Messiah would be born in a palace somewhere, the son of a king. He'd be a prince. He'd grow up to be a mighty leader of men, maybe a great warrior. He would overthrow the enemies of Israel and reestablish prosperity in the land. That's why they missed him. Again, not unlike us. Many of us are searching in the wrong place for the wrong kind of a Jesus. 
You see, Jesus wasn't born in a manger to help you get a better job. Jesus wasn't born in a manger to assure a happy life. Jesus wasn't born in a, in a manger for any other reason than to be the solution to your greatest need, to save us from our sins. He didn't come to save our, us, our, our life. He came to save our soul because he's Messiah. He's anointed. He's set apart and chosen by God. And then the last synonym he uses is Lord. And that itself is a synonym for God. It's another name for deity. This is God in the flesh. This is God with skin on. This is God in the form of a child. The author of Hebrews in your New Testament says that he became one of us, like us in every way, except one. He did not sin. So stop and think about this. Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Like the shepherds that night, like the wise men, like everyone else who met Jesus, you and I, we have a choice. Is he God? You see, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We say that all the time. Are you a Christ follower? Do you follow Jesus? Another church might say it this way. Have you been saved? Have you asked Jesus into your heart and life? To be a follower of Jesus means that you've decided he's God. I follow Jesus because I believe that he's God. I choose to surrender now rather than later. You know, the Bible says, Paul wrote it in the book of Philippians, that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, you are Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that just means that you've decided to bow your knee now. You've decided to say with your mouth, now, Jesus, you are my Lord. So, it was God's plan all along, as evidenced by the hundreds of years of biblical prophecy. It, not only that, it was as real as it gets. God became one of us. He experienced what we experience. And then finally, he was the solution to our problem. But i got to point out one last thing. Two little words. Again, Luke 2.11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. To you. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. Consider those two words, to you. Pause for a moment and consider the implication. Who's doing the speaking and who is being addressed? The angel appeared and gave the good news to a group of shepherds. Now, there were a lot easier ways to make a living in ancient Israel. Okay? Nobody grew up anxious to become a shepherd most of the time, it was part of a family tradition. Most of the time, they were poor. They were uneducated. They were very, very low on the, the social order. And yet, God chose to announce the birth of his son first to the shepherds. That's fascinating. They had to be shocked. Why us? You see, when Christ came, his birth was first announced to the outcasts of society. They were the first ones to hear. And, and maybe they were the first ones to hear because God knew that they weren't too busy trying to make money to ignore it. Maybe, uh, maybe unlike us, uh, God chose to announce the birth of his son to shepherds because he knew they weren't too distracted in this frantic pursuit for happiness and fulfillment. M maybe, maybe he knew that, that they weren't going to be all wrapped up in their own sense of pride and arrogance and self-sovereignty. And so he announced it to shepherds and they received the news with great joy, the Bible says. 
This, to me, is where Christmas becomes intensely personal. It zeroes in on where we live. This is what makes it real to me personally. You see, it's not enough to sit in a service like this or come to a Christmas Eve service or even read the Christmas story to your family on Christmas morning and think abstractly, yeah, I believe Jesus was born in a manger. There are lots of people who say that and remain lost in their sins. It's not enough to assume that Jesus came, was born in a manger for someone else. No, no. You can never follow Jesus until you're willing to say this. Christ came for me. Christ came for me. Matter of fact, I'd really like you to say that with me. Would you say it with me? Christ came for me. One, one more time. Christ came for me. Think about that. Own it. It's real. It was God's plan all along. He's the solution to our problem. Truth is, Luke chapter 2 verse 11 is Christmas in one verse because it's the gospel in one verse. Christ came for me. Christ lived for me. Christ died for me. And Christ rose again for me. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this time of year. It saddens me a little bit that it can become routine and repetitive, but Father, it is filled with the greatest news that mankind has, has ever heard. Father, it was your plan all along to do it in such an extraordinary way. And all-knowing God and Father, might we trust you even more this Christmas? Father, in addition you were the solution to our problem. We couldn't have solved it by ourselves. You did it for us. Lord, I just hope we own it this year. We make it personal and recognize that he came for us. Collectively and individually. May this Christmas be meaningful for all the regular reasons, but most importantly, may it be meaningful because we understand what it truly means. All of these things we pray with much respect to your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. Have a Merry Christmas, and I'll see you Tuesday night.